Welcome back to Extra Credit, a TransUnion card and banking podcast where we provide insights and hopefully not product pitches. Joining me and Craig LaChapelle this month is Ryan Boyle coming to us from Northern Trust. We're excited to have him on to talk about what he's seeing in the economy today and what he sees in the future. Ryan is one of our former colleagues, so we're excited to have him back talking with us. We really like Ryan because he isn't afraid to swim against the current. Uh, as you mentioned, he's currently a macroeconomic economist, excuse me, at Northern Trust. And previously he was at uh, TransUnion and he was working in our financial services and research and consulting team, which really uh, provided for a nice transition coupled with his, of course, his deep training at the University of Chicago to set him up for this unique opportunity to be a macro economist at Northern Trust. And and I think he joined Northern Trust in 2017, and he, he's been going strong um, for a while. All, come, so, all culminating in the appearance on this podcast, right? Yeah. Everything has led up to this in Ryan's life. This is the moment. So good to be with you all today. So Ryan, welcome. And before we get started, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and your, your current role and your interests outside of work as well. I'd say I have two primary sets of responsibilities. Um, first, I'm an economist within the risk management function at Northern Trust, and I play a critical part in creating scenarios and macroeconomic projections for our annual CCAR stress testing exercises, which tests the bank's capital adequacy. That's been a requirement for every major bank ever since the financial crisis. Um, and I'd say that's worked out pretty well for the industry overall as we got put to the test for real in 2020 and the public health crisis did not become a financial crisis. Uh, my team's projections are also used every quarter to inform our lost reserve calculations in this new era of Cecil, which could really be a podcast unto itself. And then there's the fun side of the job. We publish weekly economic commentaries and monthly forecasts, which you can find on northerntrust.com. I get to speak to clients and host internal briefings with the goal of making sure all our bankers are up to speed on economic issues. And that work brings me opportunities like speaking to you today. This is exciting. As I say, it's the fun part of the job and I'm looking forward to this. Thanks, Ryan. We're excited to have you here. And when you're not uh, doing economics or thinking about the economy, what, what keeps you busy? I'll share. So for one, I have three young sons, though my TransUnion colleagues will remember me as a, a new father. Uh, now my youngest is six. My oldest is about to turn 11. Uh, they keep me busy. I'm the leader of their Cub Scouts pack. Um, the pandemic turned me into a runner. I was never a runner till I took up running for literally lack of anything else to do for a couple months. And I've stuck with it. And I've since gone as far as a half marathon twice. And that's that's enough to fill a young father's days. Well, thanks and, and welcome, Ryan. We're excited to have you on and, and uh, know that folks are excited to hear what you have to say. Before we do that, this is where we go a little wacky and we have a little tradition here at Extra Credit where we like to grill our guests on trivia, something coming from their background, not necessarily from their vocation. So I did mention earlier you went to the University of Chicago, so I have some trivia related to the University of Chicago, three categories, history, campus life, and sports. See, I was not an on-campus student, so I'm most nervous about that, but maybe I know a few things about Hyde Park, but, that, uh, but I'm, I'll go for history. Easy. Okay, well, easy. I'll say that. Let's, up, go, let's go history. 
when was the University of Chicago founded? I believe it was founded or supported by John Rockefeller. It was a big name from, say, the 1880s. So I think that would put his big charitable work in the 1890s. I'll go with 1894. Really close. 1890. Okay. All right. Oh my that, God, Greg, you're not even going guess. multiple. You're not even going multiple choice this time. This is hardcore. Well, yeah, you know, maybe I was lazy in coming up with my, you know, bullet points. Now, I will say another uh, date would have been accepted in 18, 1856 when the precursor institution to the University of Chicago was founded. But enough. Let's move to accomplishments. Um, this should be in your wheelhouse. Number of Nobel laureates, and I will give you bullets on this off the cuff. Ready? Mm-hmm. 50, 75, 94, 110. Across all schools, I'll say 94. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. Excellent. Now, how many of them can you name? <laughs> ah. <laughs> how about this? Name three economists who won the Nobel Prize from uh, University of Chicago. Gary Becker. I did get to meet Professor Becker once in my time. Wow. Jealous. Um, Milton Friedman. Yes. Um, Paul Samuelson. Uh, uh, let me check. I actually have it up. I think Samuelson won a, a Nobel. Uh, we'll 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 give that as a yes. But the I'm looking at the list. It's multiple pages. Yes, he sure. did 1970. Okay. He might have been the first one actually. <laughs> uh, but you know some of my the ones that I'm familiar with. The big one is Miller, Coase from the Coase theorem. Oh, of course. And then from 2021, David Card. Very good. But I'd say there's, you know, almost 50% of all the uh, Nobel winners at University of Chicago come from, uh, what do they call it, the dismal science? All right, here's one for you. At the University of Chicago, how many schools or colleges are there? I am so tripped up on the undergrad programs, but I will say there are eight. I will give that to you because <laughs> when I looked it up, it said one undergrad and seven graduate schools. But then they also mention off to the side, there's the School of Continuing Ed. So I wasn't sure if it was eight or nine. So ding, 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 we have a winner. Okay, Campus great. life, We're going to easy one. Not a In your opinion, what are some <laughs> unique traditions at campus at the University of Chicago? I have heard, even though I was not there as an undergrad, I've heard so many stories about the scavenger hunt. Yep. Was, takes over much of the city. Do you have any go-to restaurant that you attended when you were there? Boom, only bars. <laughs> I was a business student. They even right. built they built a bar into the Gleacher Center where evening and weekend weekend classes are held, just to make sure you have no excuse not to socialize. Go up to the fifth floor after class. You'll be welcomed. I love it. <laughs> All right, sports. What is the name of the University of Chicago mascot? Maroons. Got it. Uh, what division do they compete in in the NCAA? Division three. Yes. Okay. You're on a roll. So they have a very famous football coach there. It was the first football coach. Do you know who he was? Stag. Yes. Amos All right. Stag. All well, right. Um, let's let's stop fooling around and let's get to why Ryan's here, where he can opine on the macro economy. Ryan, to kick it off, you know, I'm I'm curious just to start how do you think the U.S. economy is doing right now, and and how does that look relative to the global economy? 
Sure, uh, it's a. This won't be a quick response because there's so much happening at the moment. But that's okay. Yeah, let's dig in. I'd say first, any discussion of where we are today has to be placed in a context of where we have been for the past two years. We don't need to rehash COVID, but we can't forget about it either. 2020 was a terrible year. Let's not mince words. People were dying. We didn't understand why, but we figured out the safest thing to do was stay home. It was a year of fear. Don't be ashamed if you wipe down your groceries with bleach wipes. In my case, I live very near a public park just behind my house, and I will never forget the image of the kids climbing equipment caution taped like a crime scene because we thought the virus might spread from touching an infected surface and we didn't want to endanger the children. So nobody climb on anything. It's just the clearest example I have of erring on the side of extreme caution which came at an extreme economic cost. U.S. GDP contracted by 3.4%, the worst full year we've had since coming out of World War II. But that was 2020. Then we learned to fight back. We launched vaccines. We mass-produced tests. Remember when it was hard to get tests and now they're flooding our mailbox, they're available. We figured out which remedies worked better than others and we reopened. 2021 turned into a much better year than we had any reason to expect. Uh, Kind of a slow start in the first quarter and then blasted off. Starting in second quarter of 2021, we had a full year growth of 5.7% for the full economy. That's the fastest rate we've seen since 1984, which means anyone who's age 36 or younger just had the best economic year of their lives in 2021. And it turns out that's a faster return of demand than the economy could handle and we overheated it led to inflation and we're still reckoning with the inflation from that surge of a year so we had a terrible year then we had an outstanding year the hope for 2022 was a year of normalizing 22 has to be a slower year than 2021 that's not controversial but that feeling of slowing down can be very uncomfortable All of that, everything I just described, describes the U.S. pretty well, and I'd say that was a globally consistent story for 20 and 21 until this year. We were dealing with a global pandemic. The whole world had a bad year, then a good year, but now 2022 is diverging. So first, the COVID story is not yet complete. China is still managing the pandemic through large-scale lockdowns. If they see two positive tests, they'll shut down a city of two million people. That's a real problem for the global recovery, as the world still depends on China to produce so many goods and they've become less reliable. And that's setting aside all the geopolitical concerns surrounding China, which let's just say only add to uncertainty. And then of course, there's Ukraine. We in the US are so fortunate to be where we are. So first we're physically removed from the fighting and we're not a party to the conflict. We don't have deep trade ties here. Uh, Russia has been under sanctions since they invaded Crimea in 2014. Ukraine was only the world's 56th largest economy leading up to the invasion. We're not reliant on the Ukraine for food. We're not reliant on Russia for energy, but there are a lot of countries that don't share that good fortune. Uh, There's a whole saga surrounding energy supplies to Europe. It's evolving very quickly. I fear anything I say today may be stale by the time this episode is released. So I won't go into too much detail there. I think it's fair to say Europe is heading for a very difficult winter. Anytime there's discussion of massive futures price increases, of 
rationing and prioritizing energy use, that's a very bad situation. I do expect the euro area in UK will fall into a recession over the winter, but if they make it through the winter, we hope they can find their way back to growth. So overall, a much more favorable outlook for the US, uh, some tough times ahead across the Atlantic. Brian, you touched on some uh, great points there, but you know, I, I look at this economy and this quote unquote softening, I won't say recession, but softening, uh, this economy appears really unique in that there's increasing or healthy employment with tepid to little growth. You know, how long can that anom anomaly last? And maybe a, a related question is, you know, consequently, the consumer has been holding up fairly well. Will that last? We are paying a lot of attention to inflation, rightly so. But in that focus, we've lost sight of the labor market, which by and large is thriving. The Fed has a dual mandate, maximum employment and stable prices. Right now they're meeting half of it. Prices are obviously rising too fast, but employment is in great shape. You know, the unemployment rate got as low as three and a half percent. Payrolls have caught up and now exceed where we left off in February 2020. That's a very good recovery. Maybe not everybody landed into their old roles, but by and large, everyone who wants a job can probably find two of them. As long as we're working, we're spending. And if the labor market holds up, then we can get through the challenges of this year without a hard reset. It's very difficult to say what's coming next, but this, uh, this crisis has turned me into something of a historian to help me have some context for what's happening today. And there are some precedents for what we're seeing today. I think the closest analog was the boom economy that followed World War II. There are a lot of parallels between 1946 mm. and 2021. A global disruption had just come to an end. Soldiers were coming home ready to start families and found there wasn't enough housing available. Uh, everyone was eager to spend after wartime rationing was lifted and consumer goods became available again, but there wasn't enough available to buy. Uh, does this start to sound familiar? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. 1947 is the only other time in modern history that the U.S. economy contracted for two consecutive quarters, but is not formally considered a recession by the National Bureau of Economic Research. And crucially, no one looks back on the late 40s as a bad time for the U.S. economy, not by any stretch. There was a lot of change to work through, but we worked through it. That's hopeful. There's a less encouraging analog. I'd highlight the latter half of the 1970s. There was a major recession in 1973 and 74, sparked by the Arab oil embargo. Here again, we had high energy prices leading to high inflation. Again, sounds a bit familiar. Then starting in 1975 through 79, GDP grew every quarter. Jobs were created every month. Unemployment fell continually. But no one talks about the economy of the 1970s with any sort of fondness. We were in stagflation. Even though the economy was growing, inflation was growing even faster. So in real terms, everyone was falling behind. And that's worth studying as a risk case for today. If we can't tame inflation, there is a risk of falling into that stagflationary trap, and there's no easy way out of it. Um, if I can keep going a bit while we're rehashing yeah. the past, we should reflect a little on what recessions are like. Uh, there's a University of Chicago behavioral science insight here. Um, we succumb to recency bias. Whenever we're asked to recall something, we think of our most recent experience. If I say restaurant, you'll probably recall the last place that you ate a meal out. 
So when I say recession, you're going to think of a couple truly terrible scenarios. The last two downturns we experienced were awful. Uh, the second quarter of 2020, we had a 31% annualized GDP contraction, 22 million jobs lost in two months. It broke our minds and it broke our charts and it broke our models. What was the recession before that? A global financial crisis. The recession dragged down for six quarters, then a painfully slow recovery thereafter. Those are not typical. I mean, there really isn't a typical or standard recession as they all have different causes, different outcomes. But if we look back to a wider set of experiences, we see that cyclical recessions are usually survivable. They typically last a year or less. You see the rate of unemployment tick up by about two percentage points. I do not want to make light of job losses. They can be traumatic for the people and families who get caught up in them. But blasting up to 15% unemployment like we did in 2020 is absolutely not typical. What's crucial here is most recessions extinguish demand. And as demand falls, inflation falls away. That could be just the medicine we need to get inflation back under control. So in total, I don't take it as an encouraging signal that I'm giving history lessons about recessions in order to brace audiences for what could be to come. But if you're in the mindset of expecting a recession, it may be helpful to add some context for what they're really like. Josh, I gotta say, um, and Ryan, I was not aware of my history as well as I should have been. I was not aware of those uh, analogies, 47 and, and late 70s, that it, that jobs grew while the economy contracted. So Ryan, your appearance on the podcast is already paying dividends, at least for me. So thank you. No, same. Next question. If you were forced to choose one driver of recent inflation, what would it be? like the primary driver, the thing that should be attacked. And you can't say demand. Then I have to say supply. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was the leads. It, there's more than one factor at play, of course, but constrained supply was the primary culprit. So inflation is what happens when too much money chases too few goods. Demand is greater than supply. So was it too much demand, too little supply? And I would put more emphasis on supply. Um, the pandemic revealed just how fragile our supply chains are. Uh, we got lulled into this false sense of complacency because we were so good at producing anything we wanted wherever it was most cost effective to do so, shipping the raw materials and intermediate and finished goods around the world reliably within a day of when they're needed and cheaply at that. Uh, we squeezed every efficiency out of the system that we could, which helped to keep inflation so low for so long it all worked so well until it didn't. Every link in the supply chain failed at one point or another, whether that's you know, the miners digging out the raw materials to the factories that are building stuff, the ships that were transporting it, the trains and trucks to the warehouses, and retailers and delivery services. Everyone dealt with shortages of goods and people, and that drove inflation um, higher. Now, of course, demand has a role to play there. We were all stuck at home. Most of us kept our jobs, but we weren't able to spend our income as we were accustomed. So we spent freely on stuff, toys, computers, televisions, home improvement, even upgrading to new houses. Every category of goods purchases took off. And then we got stimulus on top of it. We had a tremendous fiscal policy response that pumped a lot of money into the system, which certainly equipped us to spend even more. The goal of those programs was to get people and businesses through a temporary shock without permanent scarring. 
We believed COVID would pass, would have been nice if it passed faster than it did, but we have moved on from the fear of it. We wanted to avoid scarring, which is permanent damage from a temporary crisis. Think of going through a bankruptcy or losing your home in foreclosure. We acted fast and big. And now we can say in hindsight, many of those measures were too generous or maybe went on too long. But I don't point to stimulus or demand as the leading factor because every country passed some pandemic relief funding, but the US was unique in how much money we gave directly to people landing right in our bank accounts. Now, every economy everywhere is dealing with elevated inflation, even for all those countries that didn't give out cash directly. So what do all those countries have in common was the global supply shock, which led to global inflation. The good news is these acute challenges are healing. Store shelves are filling again. Warehouses are filling some of their capacity. Remember the stories of that big queue of dozens of ships waiting outside the ports of Southern California? I haven't heard about that all year. It's cleared. But there are some challenges that will linger. I thought the, the Ukrainians sank them. <laughs> not in California, but uh, there are a few other waters I would not want to venture into. Right. Uh, so you, recall, you shared in my intro, I joined Northern Trust in 2017, which was auspicious as that's right when the trade war kicked off. Big headlines from a few years ago, which we don't talk about much, but we never settled it. There are a lot of justifiable concerns about doing business with China. And even more broadly, there are now worries we've revealed about concentrating our production of essential items anywhere in the world. We're going to see more diversification of suppliers. We'll get away from that mentality of simply optimizing for cost. Globalization helped to bring prices down for decades, but it's really past its peak. That's going to be a mildly inflationary force for quite some time to come. Yeah. Ryan, more important question. When am I going to get my dishwasher that I ordered three months ago? <laughs> Don't want to answer that one? All right, fine. Did you tip the salesman? <laughs> <laughs> so let me, Ryan, your your points on going back and thinking about things in a historical context were helpful because I think for for many of our customers with whom we speak, you reflexively go back into the filing cabinet to pull out the binder from the last time you did this, which is is you know, maybe 2008. And to your point, these aren't all the same. And, and certainly, you know, no one listening to this uh, was was doing what they were doing in 1946 or, or 70s. You know, if, if I'm sitting in a lender's chair, if I'm I'm looking at the journal or whatever I look at and looking at the headlines, what are some of the economic signals you would be paying attention to as a lender? And what do those mean? Sure, in the consumer lending space, and let me qualify, Northern Trust is not a mass market consumer lender, so I'm not especially focused there, but if my client base were consumers, I would be primarily concerned about people's employment. Are they still working and are they earning more money? My favorite indicator to watch there is weekly unemployment claims. They're published every Thursday morning. It's timely, it's frequent. I think of it as an economic smoke alarm. Every recession, without exception, has included significant job losses. As of today, initial claims came up from a 50-year low that we saw earlier in the year, but they're holding at a level that doesn't worry me. They're consistent with what we saw most weeks in that interval of 2016 through 18, which I regard as a very good time for labor markets. We also get continued claims, which is a measure of how many people are filing for unemployment for consecutive weeks, and that's holding low. Layoffs may be happening. We do hear the anecdotes, but people who lose their jobs have been able to bounce into a new one quickly. 
And I call that one a smoke alarm because it tells you that there's an immediate problem. It won't prevent a fire. It won't help put it out, but at least you'll know it's time to take action. Uh, there are better and deeper labor insights in the monthly employment situation summary, the report that's best known for giving us the unemployment rate. The metric to watch there is not just job creation or job losses, but wage gains. Are people earning more? We've seen outsized gains, especially in the category that the Bureau of Labor Statistics calls production and non-supervisory workers. So overall, wages are increasing about 5% this year, but it's over 6% for those lower paid frontline workers, which sounds like good news, but those are nominal figures and you have to compare them to the prevailing inflation rate, which has held over 8% for several months now. On a real basis, people are falling behind. And that would make me more concerned about my borrower's ability to pay. Just to put those numbers in context, in the pre-COVID cycle, we consistently saw wage gains of, in round numbers, 2 or 3%, and inflation of about 1 or 2%. So people were getting ahead on a real basis, and credit markets grew and performed well alongside the broader labor market. Uh, and lastly, uh, let me give you all a little extra credit as well. Hmm. You see what I did there? Um, I like it. <laughs> the financial services research team at TransUnion does good stuff. Um, I still tune into the quarterly insights webinars and it's not just for nostalgia. I'm looking for data on defaults as an indicator of stress. We know credit utilization is picking up. That's not necessarily a problem. Um, these are metrics that went haywire in the pandemic. A lot of consumers use their stimulus payments to pay down their debts, get ahead of them, defaults fell off. And now I'm aware subprime borrowers are showing more delinquency, which strikes me as a reversion to the mean. It's normal, it's okay, it's not a problem yet, but a rising trend in delinquencies is a flashing light that we shouldn't ignore out of hand. Ryan, that's that's helpful. And I, I wanted to build on one of the comments you made and thinking about wage gains relative to the costs that people are facing and some folks are, or most people falling a little bit behind. There have been a lot of headlines recently about consumer confidence. And I, I saw one this week, I think, that said that consumer confidence now is even lower than it was in the, the depths of the, the pandemic lockdowns and things. Uh, again, thinking about that from a, a lender's seat, if you can, what do I make of that? And how do you how do you think about those measures and what that means for me? I didn't lead with confidence surveys because they're soft, but we shouldn't ignore them. They've puzzled me a bit this year and they've been disappointing. Uh, you're right about that stat. They've picked up from that very low level earlier in the summer, but they did set, at least the University of Michigan survey, um, set a new record low. I don't think the conference board got quite as far, but still, Michigan has survey data back to 1966. So these survey takers are calling people up, asking them how they feel about the economy and the responses they got paint a picture where people are saying 2022 was a worse year for the economy than fuel shortages, gasoline lines in the 1970s, the double dip recession in the 80s, the dot-com bust, global financial crisis. I don't buy it. Now that said, one of the biggest challenges I face in my job, especially in these sorts of presentations, I can't tell people how to feel. I lay out facts. I do my best not to spin them. I do think the dour sentiment got out of hand this year. Uh, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm not a machine either. I'm a human and we humans have a coping mechanism. 
we minimize our memories of bad experiences so we can get on with our lives. But we do ourselves a disservice to forget what the bad times felt like, especially to forget what a terrible recession and a slow recovery feel like. Starting in 2008, we had an unemployment rate, went over 7% and stayed above 7 for five years. Do you remember the basements full of millennials? This worry mm -hmm. that young adults weren't moving out and starting their working lives? Well, it's not that the kids were lazy. There just were no entry-level jobs to be found. Uh, and now those millennials are out buying too many cars and homes and pushing up prices. But back then, people were getting their cars repossessed. They were losing their homes or voluntarily giving the keys to their homes back to their lenders. That was an incredibly long, awful slog. And circumstances today don't compare. I'm not suggesting today is perfect. We're certainly still dealing with scarcity, dealing with high prices, dealing with a lot of uncertainty, but I don't buy that it's as bad as it used to be. I also have to keep in mind, everyone's experience of the economy is unique. I feel very badly for the lowest earners who spent down any savings cushion they may have accumulated from stimulus, and now they're most pinched by the higher costs of essential purchases like food and home eating. I will spare a thought for last year's novice investors, or the people who had a little extra cash and a little spare time and started playing in markets for the first time and got burned on meme stocks or cryptocurrencies or what have you when they bought at the peak. Those people may very well feel like they are in a recession. Those of us who bought our homes before the pandemic and didn't move missed the run up in list prices and rents. Many of us even refinanced into a lower rate mortgage and lowered our cost of living a bit. Getting a 10% raise, as some of us did, sounds exciting, but then the thrill goes away very quickly if your lease goes up by 20% at renewal. Those are all real experiences that understandably can depress individuals' outlooks, but it doesn't change that the macro economy overall is still functioning well. As, as we bring this home, uh, Ryan, question for you is, you know, in your role as a macroeconomist, how do you account for the range of potential outcomes in Ukraine? Well, this gets to a, a hard part of the job, you know, for my own mental health. I'm glad we've entered an era where we can talk freely about mental health. And uh, for my own benefit, I cannot spend too much time obsessing over worst case outcomes. It can really take you to some dark places, but we also can't ignore them either. Um, if I could share a transunion memory here, I recall once visiting Jason Lockie's desk. I heard Jason on this podcast uh, not long ago. Jason had a little note taped to his monitor that said, what's the worst that can happen? And Jason had it there as a bit of encouragement to ask for a meeting or force that difficult conversation. It's, it's good motivational advice. An important part of my job is creating the macroeconomic projections for the bank's annual stress tests. And the first step in that process is brainstorming what sort of economic cataclysm could bring about that sort of outcome and build projections from there. You mentioned Ukraine. You know, there's a great example of how hard this can be. Russia has been unpredictable for many years. I pay attention to geopolitics, and from what I could tell, most very informed, very smart people did not see that invasion coming. And here's the thing. There were a small number of more hawkish forecasters who did think Russia would invade Ukraine, 
All of them expected a rapid and complete victory for Russia. It would be the end of Ukraine. It becomes a state of Russia. And instead, we saw Russia was not properly equipped for an invasion. Ukraine's defense was stronger than anyone expected. So no one, even the people who got that first step right, no one got the entire outcome correct. Let's not forget the pandemic either. Everyone knew a pandemic was possible. They've happened throughout recorded history. That doesn't mean we lived in fear of them. It does mean we were perhaps too complacent and could have done more to prepare, but that's hindsight bias. As I reflect on the last two years, I'm most impressed by our resiliency. We professionals pivoted to working from home and found it works quite well for many jobs. Restaurants became takeout only operations overnight, and most of them pulled through. The government came through in a big way, uh, just at a time that it seemed like partisan tensions would prevent any forward movement on any legislation. In an emergency, we saw we can still cooperate and get big things done. Behind the scenes, the Fed stepped in with emergency support programs to shore up banks. Uh, we averted a financial crisis. So we should celebrate the heroic efforts on the medical front, the way tests and vaccines were developed and mass produced, distributed around the world. It shows we're still capable of big things. If we could predict what the next outlier event would be, well, they wouldn't be outliers. Instead, what matters to me is that we learn from them. COVID exposed supply chain gaps and public health shortcomings. Ukraine is showing the risks of single source energy dependency. I'm encouraged by the CHIPS Act that passed Congress this summer. The pandemic revealed a fault line that semiconductor production was too concentrated in China and Taiwan, and there was no slack capacity anywhere in the world to meet a surge in demand. We're setting industrial policy to correct that. The European Parliament is considering similar legislation. Longer term, my biggest economic worries are climate risk and demographics. I am glad we're starting to take climate seriously in terms of corporate governance as well as policy support. I'd say the mere fact that I can bring it up here is a sign of a sea change. You know, just a mm -hmm. few years ago, you didn't talk about climate in polite company. It was too contentious. It would derail a conversation too quickly. Now, it seems we across the world are rising to the challenge, and that gives me hope. Demographics are a slower burning problem facing many countries, not just the US. We are living longer and healthier lives, which is great. And we long ago made a policy decision to support our fellow citizens as they age out of the workforce. The demands on programs like Social Security and Medicare are only going to rise. Meanwhile, our birth rate is falling. Immigration volumes are down. Historically, immigrants were the U.S.'s secret demographic weapon. They kept the workforce younger. They filled difficult jobs, had larger families, started new businesses, and brought a lot of vitality to the economy. Most nations closed their borders entirely in 2020 to stop the spread of COVID. And then there were ongoing restrictions and a major administrative backlog throughout 2021. So we're only starting to see a recovery in legal immigration flows this year. The more we can do to restore immigration, the better we can hedge our long-term growth and fiscal risks. Brian, thank you so much. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. I think you added a lot to Hopefully everyone who's listening, their understanding, but clearly not only to my historical understanding, but helped inform my perspective going forward. So really appreciate you attending and thanks once again. Yeah, absolutely. Leaving here with a couple of things that I, I want to spend a little more time thinking about. This has been fascinating. Thank you, Ryan. I was, I was flattered to be invited and I hope I'm an example that you can leave an employer on good terms and keep that connection alive. So it's great talking absolutely. to you today. 
you too. Know, uh, great, great talking with you as well. And let's let's keep it open for, uh, you know, you revisiting in in future years. <laughs>